Hear the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity, but one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians and enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream. But they told me, they could not tell me what it meant. At last, Daniel came in before me, and I told him the dream. He was named Belteshazzar, after my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said to him, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. While I was lying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves, and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from this tree. And as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. The messenger shouted, Cut down the tree and lop off its branches. Shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones, so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone who chooses, even to the lowliest of people. Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me, because the Spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that even um, from the the writing of a, a pagan king that we can see that you rule over the kingdoms of the world. God, as we study your word today, help us have humble hearts. Speak to us, God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So today, even though we just read a portion of Scripture, um, Daniel 4 has 37 verses, so that would have taken like 10 minutes to read, so we weren't going to do that. So we're going to look at Daniel 4. We're going to walk through the text together. So if you do have a Bible or your phone or, I don't know, whatever, iPad, anything, I'd encourage you to get, uh, get that out so you can follow along because only verses 1 through 18 are in your bulletin. But we're going to unpack the whole chapter today of Daniel 4. So to catch us up in the book, uh, we've been studying for the last few weeks. We know that Daniel and his three friends, they were taken out of their homes by the superpower of their day, Babylon. They were plucked out, put through this Babylonian cultural training program, if you will. 
under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, like most monarchs, he's ruthless. Okay, and we saw last week he, he's quick to toss you in a fiery pit if you don't play by his rules. But the big thing that we've seen throughout our study so far is that Daniel and his friends have resolved to remain faithful to God, to the God of Israel, to not defile themselves with food or the worship of the gods of Babylon. And we've seen God protect them and preserve them as a result of their faithfulness. So before we dig into the text today, there's a few interesting things that we want to know. First, this is the only passage of Scripture that is written by a pagan. It's really fascinating. It's written mostly from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, from the king's point of view. And Daniel really is only a minor player in the story. Nebuchadnezzar is the the star of the show, if you will. And we see that this text, it's written a little bit different than what we might expect in the Old Testament, right? This is, it looks a little bit more like a New Testament letter, maybe from Paul or um, one of the other apostles, but we see this letter format here in the Old Testament. So first, as we seek to, to understand the story, we're going to unpack it in, in five big movements, and then we'll apply the text. So the first thing we see in verse 1 through 3 is the king's message is proclaimed. Okay, King Nebuchadnezzar, he sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. So he puts the, the conclusion in the introduction, okay? He says, I am writing, I'm going to unpack these miracles for you, but I want you to know at the outset that I'm writing this so all peoples will know Throughout the world, right, anyone who can get his hands on this, I want them to know the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed. Okay, so this is good research paper format, right? He's got his thesis at the beginning. He's telling you what he's about to talk about. Okay, so he's setting this up. He's letting us know that he's going to show us this interaction he had with God that revealed to him how great he is. And then he's got this little section of praise in verse 3. He says, how great are his signs, the God of Israel. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. Now, this is a big proclamation for a pagan king to say, right? He's the the king of the most powerful nation in the world at this time. And there's a recognition from him that the kingdom of God will always reign, even if his kingdom, King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, may not. So after the introduction there, verses 1 through 3, we move on and we see the king's dream revealed. Nebuchadnezzar, he starts off by telling us that he he was living the good life, right? He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. So not a worry in the world, just enjoying my kingdom, you know, sipping Babylonian pina coladas, living a nice, comfortable life, everything he could ever want. But then he goes to bed. He has a dream. This dream really frightens him. So he calls in his crew of interpreters. They all come together. They get together. They try to tell him what it means, but they don't understand. So then they call in the big guns, Daniel, right? He's the master dream interpreter. And there was something special about Daniel, according to King Nebuchadnezzar, right? He says the spirit of the holy gods was in him. So Nebuchadnezzar, as a pagan, he was convinced that one of his many gods was speaking through Daniel, his faithful counselor. But of course we, right, as, as seeing on the other side of, of the veil, we know that really Daniel's qualification for understanding these dreams was that he had divine wisdom from God. 
It's not many gods working through a man. It's the one true God working through him. The same, the same is, is true for us today, right? The prerequisite for spiritual understanding is to have divine wisdom from the God who gives wisdom. Now, we're not going to read all the, the dream again, okay? So we're just going to skip down to, to verse 19 and look at the interpretation. Okay, so Daniel, he hears the dream, and then it says he's overcome. He's frightened by the meaning of the dream because of what it means for the king. He's so frightened that Nebuchadnezzar actually realizes it, right? How do we know that? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he tries to um, coerce it out of him, if you will, right? He says uh, in verse 19, Belteshazzar, or Daniel, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. He's saying, hey, hey, don't be scared to tell me the meaning. I, I brought you here to tell me. It's interesting, there, there's so much trust here between a pagan king and a God-fearing Jewish man. And it's not just one way. It's not just from King Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel. We actually see in this text, Daniel has care for the king as well. Look at what he says later in verse 19. He says, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my Lord, and not to you. I don't think Daniel's just try, trying to save his skin here, right? He's got a good track record when he's convicted of something, of standing strong, even in the face of punishment. So I don't think he's trying to butter up the king. I think he legitimately has care for this man that he's worked for for probably 30 years now. Even a man who's a pagan. So then Daniel, he interprets the dream for the king. We see in verse 20 through 22, he begins to unpack. He says, The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals live in its shade and birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Now, the central image here of the dream, a great tree, this was really common in the ancient Near East culture. It represented greatness and royalty. And it's not just something we see in pagan circles, right? Even in the Old Testament writings, we see um, the God of Israel talk about planting oaks of righteousness, right? If you go out and look at the trees in the front yard of Carlisle that have been here for a hundred plus years, like those suckers aren't moving anytime soon, right? There's this imagery of royalty and greatness in these huge trees. So that's the central image of the tree. But the fate of the tree is at stake. Daniel goes on with the interpretation. Look at me in verse 23. He says, Then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it. But there's a little, little nugget of grace here. Leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and, surround, bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched. With the dew of heaven, let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. So Daniel's saying that the king is going to be cast out to live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time, or, or seven years is an easier interpretation. And this number of seven, if you've read scripture a little bit, you'll see this a lot. It's, it's, this, um, it's this symbolism of completion. Okay, so the dream, essentially, the messenger is saying, send him out to fully experience judgment to go through the full cycle of judgment, all the seasons, all the emotions, the full cycle of judgment for seven years' time. 
Verse 24, this is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord, the King. You will be driven from human society, and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way, until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. So the king will be like a, a wild man, basically. He's going to have his sanity taken away from him. He'll be driven out and lowered to being like an animal. So the king, he, he would have been viewed in this time by, by those that he ruled over as, as a god-like figure, untouchable. And even the king himself was probably starting to see himself in this way as untouchable and godlike. But now he's going to be lowered to living a subhuman existence with the animals. Then it's interesting, we see Daniel, so the king just calls him in, he says, interpret my dream, let me know what this means. But Daniel actually takes it a step further and gives the king advice. So again, this highlights how much favor Daniel has with the king, right? That he could take it a step further, that he could give this man advice rather than just do what he said. And it also shows how much he cares for the king. Like why on earth would he call the king to repentance if he doesn't really care about his fate? But Daniel pleads with him. In verse 27, he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. But we see in verses 28 through 33, Daniel's warnings simply aren't enough. As we move on, we see the king's kingdom is actually removed. If you look at verse 29 with me, it says, 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. So notice first here that, that God has given Nebuchadnezzar time to repent. So Daniel warns him of the pride that he's in. And then it says that one year later, we pick up in the story, right? So this is a gift of God. He's given him a year to turn away from his sinful pride. But we see in verse 30 that Nebuchadnezzar, he's still stuck in his sin. It says, as he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon by my own mighty power. It says, by, it says myself, by myself, I have built this, is what he's saying. I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. So as we look up here on the screen, Babylon really was, this is an artist's rendition, okay, not a real picture from, <laughs> I know you guys thought it was for a second, but it's not, trust me. But Babylon really was one of the greatest cities in the ancient world at this time. When Nebuchadnezzar was reigning, he actually built three, um, not concentric circles, concentric squares, if that's a thing, I think concentric circles. He built three concentric squares of walls around the city, each of which was 40 feet high. The Greek historian Herodotus, he wrote that the walls were so thick that they could have chariot races on top of them, right? It's like NASCAR races running around the city. Those are big walls. And the city inside the walls occupied a 200 square mile footprint, okay, which is like the size of Chicago, basically. He built three major palaces, each of which was um, lavishly decorated with these blue and yellow title, tiles. 
Um, he built a number of shrines, the largest of which was to the Babylonian god Marduk, and it stood 280 feet tall. It's like a 26-story office building in 530 B.C. It's amazing. Now, just to see some of the beauty, uh, one of the gates, the Ishtar Gate, was... Okay, so pieces of it were um, discovered in the 1900s. Um, the foundation and then a lot of those tile animals were discovered around the 1900s. But this is, this is what it would have looked like. And I show you that just to, to see the, the beauty of this city. It was expansive. It was beautiful. So Nebuchadnezzar had a lot to be proud about, right? Like, at least in an earthly sense. But earthly success or accomplishments is never a warrant for sinful pride. Earthly success and accomplishments is never a warrant for sinful pride. So he's really enjoying his accomplishments, right? He's basking in his amazingness. He's like, everyone, come and see how awesome I am. And then we read this in verse 31. It says, while these words were still in his mouth, hadn't even gotten out yet, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer the ruler of this kingdom. And look at verse 33. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven out from human society. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched, drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. English poet and painter William Blake, he has a painting called Nebuchadnezzar based on this exact account. And I believe it captures the, the humiliation, the lowliness to which Nebuchadnezzar reached, right? Like you can see the animal-like features, the, the hair like eagle's uh, feathers, the, the um, nails like bird's claws. And then Blake, I think, takes a little bit of liberty and you can see his, the bottom half of his body just being overcome with beastliness, lowliness. So the man who was the ruler of humans, he's now lower than the humans. He's slumming with the animals, eating the grass like a cow, being drenched in the morning dew as he sleeps and wakes up in the morning. But what we see is that God works best in humanity's lowliness. God works best in humanity's lowliness. And in verse 34, we see the king's kingdom is restored. It says, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. So from the, the mouth of a proud pagan king who's at rock bottom come the praises of the Most High God, the God of Israel. And not only is, is King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom restored to him, but it says he's even given greater honor than he had before. How generous is God? And more than just the restoration of his kingdom, I think we actually have reason to believe that his soul was restored with God. That he had some type of conversion experience, if you will. It says in verse 37, this is how he ends the account. 
It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. So having unpacked the story, we need to ask the question, well, what does this story teach us? What is the account? How does God's dealings with a pagan emperor from 2,600 years ago, how does it affect us today? There's two big truths that I believe that God wants to to teach us, and they, they come straight from the text. First is that God rules over kingdoms and kings. God rules over kingdoms and kings. And this is a phrase that's repeated throughout the text. We see it um, in, in verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32. It says, The decision is announced by his messengers in verse 17. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets, them, sets over them the lowliest of people. So he wrote this whole account, so that the living may know that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms. And then in verse 25 and 32, we, we read virtually the same thing. It says, You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heavens. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Until you acknowledge that, Nebuchadnezzar, you'll be like an animal. So the point of this whole thing is so that everyone may know that God, the Most High, is sovereign, that he is in control of kingdoms and kings, places and peoples. He gives them to anyone he wishes. And the truth, it's not just for arrogant rulers, right? It's not just for people like Nebuchadnezzar. So they'll get bumped down a couple pegs in the humility scale, right? It's a comfort as well for us, God's people. Because God rules over kingdoms and kings, we should have great comfort knowing that he is in control. Nebuchadnezzar himself, in verse 3, said, How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever. Praise God. He says it again in verse 34. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases. God's rule and his reign are forever. As kingdoms rise and fall around us, God's reign never falters. He reminds us of this in Isaiah 46. God says, remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. He's in control. And then Paul reiterates this truth too in Romans 13, that God rules kingdoms and kings. He says, all authority comes from God. All authority is delegated. All authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So all power, all authority is delegated by God, and this is a truth that should comfort us. It's not as if rulers are just kind of weaseling their ways through like backwood deals to to get into power, going around God, usurping him. God is placing kingdoms and kings in power to accomplish his purposes, and that should bring us comfort as God's people. Now, this promise that that God rules kingdoms and kings, it it might not pack as much punch for those in a democratic society. You know, it's like we we get to vote, like we feel like we have a lot of say, 
but then the sneaky electoral college, it's like maybe you don't have as much to say. Like in a democratic society, we're, it doesn't mean as much, right? We're not under the oppression of monarchs. But imagine with me if you're a Jewish person reading this under the rule of King Antiochus, who destroyed your temple. So, so you're saying he, he was chosen by God? He was appointed by God? Or what about, what about King Nero, the Roman emperor who burned Christians alive and who Christians would have read Romans 13 under his rule? That guy is appointed by God? Or what about our country's leaders today? Has God really put them in power? Our president, our senators, our representatives, governors, mayors, all of those folks? The answer in the book of Daniel is yes, a resounding yes. That should comfort us. That should give us peace as God's people. God's not in heaven freaking out right now, wringing his hands over the rulers that are in power. If God rules over kingdoms and kings, over places and people, then no matter the leaders who are over us, we can trust that God is using them to accomplish his purposes. He is in control that should bring us great comfort. We see in our text today that, that he can even use the most proud and ruthless leaders. We also see in verse 31, or verse 37, excuse me, that God humbles the proud. God humbles the proud. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. So this whole chapter of Daniel is ultimately a parable to us about how one ruthless, arrogant, and proud ruler went on a journey of forced, if you will, humility. And this pride that he has is ultimately rooted in control. It's rooted in the desire and even the the gall or the guts to think that he has more control than God does. C.J. Mahaney, he's got this great little book called Humility. Highly recommend it. He defines pride in this way. He says, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. So the showdown here between God and Nebuchadnezzar is ultimately one about command and control. It's a question of who is, who is really in charge here. Did King Nebuchadnezzar really have much to do with his rule and reign as he thinks? Did he control what country he was born in or what family he was born into? Did he control the the shape of the armies around him that he conquered? Or did he control where in history his reign fell? See, Nebuchadnezzar, he was the victim of pride. He was a victim of the desire to achieve the status and the position of God. He's the victim of the little voice in all of us that says, you don't really need to depend on God. You got this. Just dust yourself off and get back up. You can do this by yourself. And maybe you're tempted to say, well, pride is an issue for high up rulers or people in control and and in power. that's like saying greed is only a struggle for rich people, right? 
Pride is, is a universal struggle. It's true for the ruler and the ruled, for, for the president and the peons, for the boss and the busboy. We all struggle with pride. And this is the thing humanity has struggled with since day one, right? The first sin. Our father and mother, Adam and Eve, they were tempted to be like God. It was a temptation to usurp God's authority, to take control for ourselves. Right? In Genesis 3, 5, Satan says to Eve, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat the fruit, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So the same siren song, to be like God, it, it echoes all throughout humanity. It's calling us, it's beckoning us. And as the song lures us in, we actually forget where it leads, down the path to destruction. Proverbs 16, 15, it says, Pride goes before destruction, and haughtiness before a fall. When we're arrogant and we are proud, God will humble us. In Proverbs 16, 5, the Lord detests the proud. They will surely be punished. We all struggle with pride. We all forget that it leads to destruction. But praise God that we serve a merciful God. Even in King Nebuchadnezzar's story, we can look and see how gracious God was to him. Like, aside from putting up billboards in front of him that says, don't go down this path, turn back, right? Aside from that, which he didn't do, but there's a lot of evidences of God's grace calling him back to repentance. He gave him a dream to warn him where his pride was leaving him. And it's, it's not like this like weird dream, you know, like where you have the dream where your teeth fall out and you wake up and you're like, what does that mean? Why are my teeth falling out, right? Like God gave him interpreters. He, he knew what the dream meant. There's no confusion there. So he gave him a dream that warned him. He gave him a faithful interpreter to tell him the meaning of the dream. That faithful interpreter took it a step further and gave him advice on how to act on the dream. It was served up to Nebuchadnezzar on a platter. He didn't have to cook the meat. He just had to eat it, right? It's like, repent, turn, turn around, go back. And then on top of all that, God gave him one year to repent. This wasn't like a one-day event. Like he had the dream, it was interpreted, Daniel gave him advice, and then the next day, God was like, no, nah, bro, you're done. He gave him an entire year. How gracious was God to Nebuchadnezzar? And he does the same thing for us. In our pride, in our arrogance, God gives us grace. He gives us the means through the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit to actually practice humility. We don't have to be forced down to a bended knee. We can pursue humility through the gracious means that God has given us. So how do we do that? Well, there's three things here that I want to encourage you with on how to cultivate humility in your life. First is to remember God's sovereignty. Remember that God is in control. He's in control of kingdoms and kings, places and peoples. And because he rules in all the big stuff, don't you think he probably rules in all the small stuff? I know none of y'all are kings or queens, but I think if he can take care of the kings and queens, he can take care of you, right? If he can take care of the birds, aren't you more important than the birds? Isn't that what Jesus says? 
Because of that, because God is God, you don't have to be. Yes and amen, right? (laughs) I know all you guys would be awesome God. I would not be a good God, right? But isn't that a nice breath of fresh air that you don't have to try and control everything? God is God and you are not. Remember that God's sovereign, that he's in control. Second, remember your humanity. Okay, oftentimes when we think we're God, it's because we've forgotten how human we really are. Like, it's so silly, but just remembering the fact that you are a mortal being, that you're limited to space and time, that you don't know everything. King Nebuchadnezzar, he'd forgotten that. And at the flip of a switch, he literally went insane. Anybody who struggled with mental illness that knows how debilitating that can be, right? It's frustrating that a small, just a small chemical imbalance can literally make you crazy. And that, that's your own brain inside of you. Like, you, you think you've got control, right? Until something goes awry. Our bodies are, are fragile things, right? Last summer, uh, I... I preached this youth camp in Oklahoma and went home to Dallas for a few days to be with my family. Um, And then day two, I was just hanging with my family, getting ready to eat lunch, and then I had this, like, really sharp pain in my side. I was like, hmm, that hurts. I've had it before, right? Normally, go to sleep, wake up the next day, it's better. So I was like, okay, this will either go away or maybe, you know, this is like, five days of camp food indigestion. Uh, It's one of those two. So tried to go to bed early, sleep it off, woke up at midnight, did not go away, it had gotten worse. Uh, You know, you start Googling, right? You're like, get on WebMD, it's either you have like cancer or appendicitis. And I was like, well, neither of those are great options, but I think it's time to go to the ER. And so I got there, you know, of course, um, my fears were confirmed. It was not cancer of my appendix, but it was appendicitis, and had to have surgery the next day. It's amazing to me, right, like, that no matter how much I work out, no matter if I eat my veggies or take my multivitamins, that a small, pinky-sized organ can literally take my body down. Like, if it weren't for modern medicine, I'd be dead right now, you know? It's like, I wouldn't have survived in the early church, y'all, you know? Y'all would have, y'all would have pressed on without me. But it's crazy, right? Like, I get a cold and my whole week's wreck. It's like, we, we think that we're in such good control, right? Like, but even our bodies betray us. We don't even have control over our own physical bodies that much. It's just such a good reminder, right, of your humanity. That if I can't even control my own body, which I think I have a lot of control over, then I probably can't control all the bodies around me, right? You can't control whether your kids walk out of the kid's wing with hand, foot, and mouth disease. Okay? Can't control it. Sorry. You can't really control whether or not your grandchildren become Christians. You can't control layoffs. Or if we get bigger, natural disasters. You can't control bad drivers. We are human. We weren't created to be God.
to, ha- to have to try to control all the intricacies of everyone else's lives, it's just not going to work. It just leads to further pride and further arrogance. I think that brings us to our third and final um, practice, if you will. And that's to practice humble dependence. To practice humble dependence. So at the root of our issue with pride is a lack of dependence on God. It's trying to go at this, this thing called life all alone. But when we're stuck in our pride, when we're independent, that actually leaves no room for God to work. It shuts him out. James 4, 6, it reminds us that that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But I would go so far as to actually say that the proud are actually the ones that oppose God. Right? Jesus has this this great line in the Gospel of Mark when he says that um, the healthy don't go visit a doctor because they don't need one. Only the sick do. And in the same way, the proud, they don't depend on God because they've got it all taken care of. The independent person can't be dependent, right? Those are opposites. There's independence and dependence. If you're an independent person, you can't be dependent upon God. And I think in life, God tells us, hey, there's an easy way, and then there's a hard way. Right? It's like when you're trying to give your kids medicine, and you say to them, hey, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, Right? The easy way is you just drink it, just enjoy the bubblegum flavor, even though it tastes weird. Or the hard way, what's that, right? I sit on top of you, and I pucker your lips, and I just force it down your, your gullet, right? There's the easy way and the hard way. The same is true for us in our journey of humility. The easy road is one of humble dependence, one that submits to God that doesn't operate in pride or arrogance, it recognizes and actually relishes in the fact that God can handle all these things. That road really depends on God. The hard road, though, is one of forced humility. One that, that even after God, maybe he brings friends graciously into your life to warn you to turn around, to repent. Or maybe he speaks clearly in his word, even though you're not listening, you press on, you go down the hard road, force God's hand. Maybe it means stripping you of your job or smaller scale, getting the flu, being wrecked. Or maybe it's even being uh, put under church discipline by your local church and sent out a fellowship. Whatever it may be, God will humble the proud. But we saw here, even in Nebuchadnezzar's story, that, that God's humbling, it's, it's never punitive. He's not just doing it to punish you. It's always restorative. God desires you to be in right relationship with you. His purpose is to bring you back, but, but wouldn't you rather just not leave in the first place? James 4.10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. You know, often I, I say it in a joking tone, but I really mean it. Like, I do my best to stay humble before God because I don't want him to have to humble me. I don't want God to have to do it for me. Is that the best motivation? Maybe not. 
but I imagine that's probably better than me being proud and arrogant and shutting God out of my life. See, when, when we're proud and independent, we don't need Jesus. When Jesus said that the healthy don't need a doctor, only the sick do, he was talking to the religious leaders of his day, and they were a prideful bunch. Metaphorically speaking, they thought they weren't sick, right? They looked good on the outside. They did all the things you're supposed to, right? They were on the keto diet. They worked out. They took their vitamin C every day. All the while, they had a terminal cancer eating away at their insides. Cancer of pride just ripping through them. Jesus, he, he can't help those who don't need his help. And even as, as proclaimed Christians, we, we can push Jesus away. When we think we, we've graduated from the gospel, when we think the gospel is just something for all the wretched sinners out in the world, we don't realize it, but we're actually the sickest ones in the bunch. We're the ones in need of the gospel the most. The gospel, it, it's not something we graduate from. It's not the, the ABCs. It's the A to Z. It's everything. It's our very lifeblood. It's the only thing that actually gives us life. And if we think we've moved on from it, it's like pulling our own life support plug. So, so whether you're here today, you're a Christian or you're not, the response to the gospel is the same. It's humility. It's a call to remember God's sovereignty, that he is God and you are not. It's a call to remember your humanity, that you are frail, you are broken, you are sinful, in need of something way bigger than you, way holier than you. And then lastly, it's, it's a call to, to practice humble dependence, to turn away from your pride, from your arrogance, to set that down to say, Jesus, I, I need you. You are God and I am not. Will you do what only you can do? On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated a, a, a meal together that we celebrate now called communion. And it was a reminder, it is a reminder for us of the gospel. That the sovereign God of the world, who is in control of all things, became a human. He took on our broken humanity. He humbled himself so that he could raise us up in honor. So on that night, he took bread, he broke it after giving thanks, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way on that night, he took cup of wine, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, our tradition is to break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. There will be stations up here at the front. You can figure out where you're supposed to go behind me. There's gluten-free to my left and your right. If you're not able to come forward to take communion, um, for physical reasons, um, we can bring the elements to you, so just stay seated and be sure to wave us down. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, we ask that you not partake in this meal, not because we're trying to be um, uh, exclusive, but this
this meal is about those, or is for those who are about the reality of Christ, and to uh, partake in it um, would be actually to eat and drink condemnation on yourselves, is what Paul says. So um, we want to invite you to take Christ. So if you have questions about what it means to become a Christian, to humble yourself before a holy and perfect God, you can come talk to myself or Pastor James after the service, and we'd love to prepare you to take communion even next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are God and we are not. We also thank you that you are a God that was willing to humble yourself for us. You didn't just look upon us and, and continue to condemn us as we walked around in, in sinful pride, um, but you took on flesh. You humbled yourself. You left the riches of your kingdom to take on our poverty to then save us and invite us to participate in the riches of your kingdom. God, I ask that as we continue to um, worship you today, that we would remember how powerful you are and how lowly we are. It's only in that, God, that we can really receive and understand the gospel. Jesus, we thank you for your work on the cross on our behalf. We pray all this in your name. Amen.